gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out where the sixth chair has appeared. Um, so, just so you know, uh, I am recording this from St. George, Utah. I'm in a lovely hotel, and I assume it's downtown, or I don't know, everything's it feels uptown because you had to drive uphill to get here, but I don't know if that's dispositive of anything. And it's also very early. It's uh, uh, two hours behind uh, East Coast, and um, and we were recording this pre-dawn on my end uh, so that we would have more space for travel and jocularity with the family. And um, I've dragooned my old friend and... Um, and former partner in crime from my earliest days in Washington, D.C. to come back. He is barreling towards his gold jacket, and uh, he has a new piece in National Affairs. Oh, the other thing I need to add, just so if people start realizing that I'm about as um, sharp as a beanbag chair, is that I have not had coffee yet because um, they're not serving it here in the hotel until uh, halfway into this podcast. Um, which is inconvenient. So if I um, start rambling or being incoherent or get really snippy with our guest, that's why. Uh, but he's used to me being snippy. So anyway, uh, I want to welcome back uh, my friend and a scholar and a gentleman, Tevi Troy, to The Remnant. Tevi, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Always happy to continue to be a partner in crime with you. <laughs> um, so uh, have you been vaccinated, by the way? I am one shot in, and I get the second one next week. And um, is it because you used to be an HHS guy, and so you have all of these like shady connections inside the government who hooked you up? No, the truth is that a lot of people around me were getting vaccinated, and they said, all you have to do is apply yourself, meaning find a place that has excess vaccine, and go at the time that they have excess vaccine and are willing to distribute it. And there was a local CVS near me, and I went at the appointed time once, with no luck, twice with no luck. And the third time they had excess vaccine. And that just happened, the third time you went there, that just happened to be the time you left that envelope with those $50 bills in it <laughs> by accident? It was something like that. Um, but look, there are some places that are making the wise decision of if you have extra vaccine, they will distribute it rather than throw it out. And I think that's the, the way we should be doing this as a public health guy. you got to get shots in arms. That's the way we're going to get to herd immunity. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Like, I'm all in favor of, I mean, it, it, triage makes sense. You know, when in doubt, give it to the people most vulnerable, the most likely to die from the thing. Give it to people with comorbidities. But um, better to put it in an arm than to put it in a trash can. And uh, haste is, there's a benefit to haste that doesn't, that that exists outside of, you know, all of these other priorities. and um, I wish we had a little bit more of the spirit of sort of World War II and Leslie Groves and just get it done. But how do, I, I, anyway, I should ask you this more broadly. I mean, we're going to talk about this article you have in National Affairs and some other things as well. But um, you were number two guy at HHS for a while, and um, you wrote a book about you know disasters and all that kind of stuff. How, how, how do you grade 
the Biden administration um, and, and, and just to sort of in general, our response to the pandemic, I'm sure you give high marks to the pharmaceutical companies, but what, what is your overall assessment of how we've handled this? Overall, I think uh, we as a nation probably got a C minus to D plus uh, initially. Um, I, I definitely would give an A for the vaccine development. I think the initial stages were really a mess. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that we have three walls of defense for pandemics. And this is something that I worked on in the Bush administration. One is international monitoring. And because of a combination of the Chinese not being honest, the WHO not looking at it, and us not looking hard enough at the Chinese, we were unaware of what was happening until it was too late. The second wall is track, trace, test. And we did not do a good job on that either. And part of that was the CDC unwilling, being unwilling to let other people develop tests, even though there were tests in development at the time, the CDC thought they could do it all themselves and they failed. And then the third wall of defense, and this is something I did talk about in my book, Shall We Wake the President, is having the right countermeasures in the strategic national stockpile. And I had warned in that book back in 2016 that we did not have anything for coronavirus. I'm not talking SARS-CoV-2, the particular strain, but coronavirus in general, which was a concern. And this is something that could have been developed earlier. So I think on those three fronts, we did not do a good job. Uh, you want to talk specifically about presidents. Uh, I think that um, the communications from the last administration was not good. I think it was uh, not clear, and I think it was muddled. And I, the whole thing about fighting over masks and hydroxychloroquine, uh, and there was fault on multiple sides, but it was just not the smart way to do it. You want to be unifying. You want to give people clear information. You want to give people a sense of what's going on. I think in the Biden administration, what they've been doing is really setting expectations as low as possible and then making sure they can meet them. And this whole thing of maybe you can meet with your family outdoors on July 4th. I mean, people are doing that already. And I'm talking you know, uh, people I call in the glot COVID category. I mean, really strict people will do that even now. So I, I thought that was kind of a, a very low bar to set. But at the, at the end of the day, they're going to be able to say on July 4th, hey, look, people were able to meet in their backyard on July 4th, and there's not going to be a spike as a result. So uh, I think we as a nation definitely learned a lot. Uh, we've made some improvements. I'm happy that uh, we're doing okay on the vaccine rollout at this point. The initial stage was not great. Uh, so I think we're, we're making some progress, but uh, we could have done better. Yeah, I, on the on that 4th of July thing, I mean, I talked about it on here. I. I, I, I'm with you generally. I mean, I think the Biden administration has been fairly smart about, you know, under promising and over delivering and all that kind of stuff. I think though, like the broader messaging um, is weird to me. I mean, my understanding is that in Israel, the way they hype people getting the vaccine is get the vaccine and you can go back to life as normal. And um, and that doesn't mean that you can't, with that messaging, also say, hey, you know, be careful around people who haven't been vaccinated because we don't know whether you can transmit it, transmit it and yada, yada, yada. But you do get the sense that there are just people out there who um, kind of just don't want this to end. <laughs> um, and like I, and 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 so mess the messaging about the July 4th thing. Um, I think if you, you could rewrite the paragraph that he made that comment in and it doesn't become the headline the next day, but and it doesn't become the talking point on Fox News the next day, 
but it was just, I think it was just badly written. I mean, because you're right. I mean, like people did that a year ago, you know, met with, fam- you know, close family at, in socially distance in their backyards for barbecues and whatnot. And in, and in a lot of places, they had much bigger gatherings on the 4th of July. And um, it just seems like there's no, there's a real unwillingness to dangle a carrot in front of the public about how there's our actual valuable payoff to taking the vaccine and, and getting your life back. And, and, and I just don't completely understand it as a matter of public health, never mind as a matter of politics, because I think people are looking for some optimism and it would help Biden. But what do I know? Yeah, Jonah, I agree with you, but I think that there's a larger point here that this is not about the Biden administration per se, but about the public health community writ large. And you say there are people who don't want this to end. I think public health likes, and they would never say, oh, we like having control over people, but they, you know, they, they, they are kind of a, a, a nanny statist group, I guess. And they, they do like the control. They don't like saying, oh, go have fun after a vaccine. Uh, there have been other instances where they had... Um, what shall we call them strategic mistruth, mistruths to get a point across, such as in initially saying don't wear masks because they didn't want people to take masks from them or from the frontline health workers. Uh, the questions about what percentage you need to get herd immunity. There's also been strategic mistruths there. So I think this whole sense that public health will tell you what you need to know when you need to know it, and they were willing to shade the truth, I think is very problematic. And I think we need to have a strong sense that we can believe and trust public health and that they don't have political interests in large in mind when they're doing when they're making their statements. So, for example, that statement over the summer about the uh, BLM protests, I thought was really bad for the reputation of public health. It was the sense of we hate all gatherings. We hate if you gather or protest the lockdowns. But if you gather to protest something we approve of, then we think that's OK. And that tells a lot of people that public health is being political and not scientific. And, and I think that's something that we really need to work on going forward to make sure that if public health says something, people will say, OK, I'm going to take this shot. I'm going to shelter in place because I trust them and they're not being political about it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I wrote a G-file called The Treason of the Epidemiologist about all that stuff, because that was really, I thought, extremely bad. And in particularly their arguments you know, if you look at what the actual public health people said about why going to these protests was okay, they, the, they basically went the only place they could go, which was to say ending racism, racism is a public health problem too. And so ending racism is worth it to risk getting COVID and, and like, okay, I, I, my view on that is okay. Show me how these protests are going to in fact end racism. And if they, if they are going to do that, by all means, let's have more of these protests. But like, no, none of these people are going to declare, okay, racism is over after, you know, a couple of weeks of Black Lives Matter protests. And, um, and I think, I think you're right. I think the damage done from that alone was, was profound. And, um, and there was very little accountability about it in the press because the press had the exact same, same view. I mean, the New York Times loved to scold people about social distancing and, and, as you put it, glot COVID um, practices. And then they too were just gave all that up for Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, there's this guy named Harold Pollack. He is a professor at University of Chicago, a liberal guy, a friend of mine. And he wrote this piece in the Washington Post about the problem of public health kind of alienating conservatives and how public health needs to do work to make sure that conservatives don't reject what they have to say. And he talked about the, the letter, but also just this general sense that 
that public health doesn't respect conservatives and the fact that conservatives have different viewpoints on a whole host of issues. And I think that public health needs to look at this of we need to reach out to the entire country, just like they say, oh, we need to reach out to African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans and Asian-Americans. They need to look at conservatives, too, as a group that there are things that public health says that alienate them. And if they don't do that, there's a lot of conservatives in this country. In fact, I would say more than those than the other ethnic minority groups. So if you and there's some in those ethnic minority groups, that's lots of them. (laughs) Uh, And I think if you alienate a large swath of the population, you're not going to be able to get effective response to public health messages. And this is really a point I just highlight over and over again in Shall We Wake the President, what what the president needs to do when an emergency comes, is talk to the American people in a unifying way, in a way that all the American people are on board. And, you know, with the last administration, all the stuff about, oh, hydroxychloroquine, I won't take it because he likes it. Or even uh, Kamala Harris saying that thing about uh, we won't take the vaccine because the Trump administration approved it. And now all of a sudden she's telling everyone to get the vaccine, which now she should be doing that. But back then she should not have been questioning the vaccine. So I, I think the politicization of public health is a much broader issue that we really need to address. And I'd like to see us find a way to get through it. So the next time there's a public health emergency, and obviously there will be, that the American people can say, okay, public health is giving us actionable, scientific, non-political information. All right, well, let's use that as a jumping off point, not not, not the national affairs piece, which we are going to get to, but um, a point about the presidency, which you've written. How many books have you written directly about the presidency in one way or another? Four? Yeah, see... See the I, I want Tevi. You're a smart guy. You got a PhD and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when you hold up your fingers on the video during a podcast, the audience doesn't get the answer to the question. I was trying to make you look smart so that you could say four without <laughs> like, knowing that I signaled you. I, I I certainly hope that that whether or not people think I'm smart doesn't hinge on me remembering that it was four books that you, that That your very old dear friend and partner in crime had written. (laughs) Well, well, look, I mean, all right. I'm aware of the number of books you've written and uh, tweeted and uh, glorified all of them. I, you've been very kind to me. I agree with that. Uh, um, But I, so you raise this point about how presidents during national crises need to um, speak to the broadest swath of Americans possible and, and sort of broadcast rather than narrowcast. And this sort of touches on something I've been writing, writing and thinking about a bit lately. Um, you know, I think it was Ramesh who first made the argument 20 years ago that presidents have become sort of avatars in the culture war. And, um, and since then, I think that's basically become conventional wisdom because it's true. And, um, and part of the problem, I think, that you get into is that that partisans of one side or the other side of the culture war in the way that fish don't know they're wet they don't see how it when they're when their president is in they don't see how that president is is culture is 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 signaling in the culture war to the other side that he's not their president and um and so they don't understand why so many people were so mean to george w bush because they thought george w bush was their kind of president and they thought therefore it was their, everybody's kind of president. And then with Barack Obama, I mean, I remember having these conversations with people and liberals would look at me with utter confusion because I would say, you don't understand Obama signals to sort of effete Northeastern liberals and West coast liberals 
that he's their guy in the culture war as much as George W. Bush did to people in Texas and Florida. And, um, and the remarkable thing about Donald Trump was that he didn't hide it, right? He didn't, the one thing that, that, that every president prior to Trump did was at least pretend that they were the president of the entire country. And Trump dismissed that, said the other side is full of bad people and all that kind of stuff. And it's us versus them. And the only good people are my people. Um, and so I have this theory that Biden, in part because he is 9,000 years old, um, and I don't just mean f- f- biologically old, he's kind of m- like culturally old. He comes from a different era of politics that one of the reasons why he has got the 60% approval rating is he actually doesn't know how to play those games. And he comes from a more sort of black backslapping, ward healing, rah-rah America is great kind of school of politics that is attractive to more Americans than the styles of the previous couple, you know, three presidents that we've had. What do you think about that? I, I completely agree with that. And I thought it was notable in his speech to the nation. And you know, it was a big deal. Presidents don't give a lot of those speeches uh, from, the, from the White House to the nation in prime time. And I thought he consciously spoke in that way where he was trying to speak to the entire American public. He was not doing those kind of cultural signals that Obama did that would drive people like me and, and you crazy. And I, I was quite impressed with the way that rhetorically it was a speech that was not really trying to stick a finger in the eye of conservatives. And look, I, you know, d- did I agree with everything? I already criticized the July 4th thing. But for the, for the most part, rhetorically, I thought that speech was the kind of speech a president needs to give to try and unify the country. And so, again, maybe it's because he's somewhat old uh, that he's from that perspective. But it doesn't mean that we can't have a new president in the future who tries to speak that way, especially if Biden keeps up these high approval ratings. Somebody might say in the future, hmm, maybe the whole idea of just holding on to my base and expanding it a little in the next election, which is what George W. Bush, for whom I work, did and what Obama did, maybe that's not the best way. Maybe you can get a, a 60% uh, election win like Ronald Reagan did or that Richard Nixon did by speaking to the American people more broadly, by not trying to divide us up into groups and by saying, hey, there's a larger American mission here at, at stake. And I think it's a really important thing to do, especially when you look at the, uh, the criticism that the uh, Chinese gave us in that recent summit uh, where, where they basically parroted all of the talking points uh, that the left has been saying about how terrible America is. And now you have an administration that many of the people believe those talking points and the Chinese were giving those points back to us. Maybe we should start celebrating America again, which is what Ronald Reagan would often do. And and I think previous presidents said, okay, we may have disagreements about tax rates or tariffs, but we agree in the concept of the greatness of America. And I think that would be a very strong signal for presidents to send going forward. Yeah, I have a, my, LA Times column, which will be my syndicated column tomorrow at the dispatch, uh, is on that China summit thing. And, um, I found it pretty depressing. You know, once you actually, I mean, I, I, you can, you can cut Blinken, the secretary of state, some slack because he was sandbagged, but at the same time, he should have been ready to be sandbagged. You know, they should have had some intel about and some prep work about what the Chinese may try to do with this thing. Um, so, but like his response, I mean, let's put it this way. If I say to you, Tevi, you are a 
moperer, um, a slacker, um, a deviant, um, a thief. And um, therefore, you have no right to lecture me about anything. And your response is, well, look, I've never denied that I have problems and I, I'm working them through and I'm honest about them. That's not a denial. That's not a you know, rebuttal. And what Blinken said was, look, one of the great things about America is that we confront our problems and they're real and that we, we learn from them and we debate them and we become stronger out of them. And so basically he was conceding what the Chinese were saying about us. And the idea that America is um, so flawed that it has no right to condemn what, you know, China's behavior is so morally obtuse, it drives me crazy. But we're at this point in our politics where nobody knows how to talk with a just sort of assured, prideful self-confidence about why America is a good country and about patriotism anymore. And, you know, because the, the, the Trump stuff is all moved from patriotism to nationalism and America first. And, um, and, you know, and we're suckers and also, Oh, by the way, the, the election was stolen and democracy is rigged. And on the left, it's all white supremacy and institutional racism and, um, 1619 project crap. And it kind of makes you crave even for a Bill Clinton, I mean, Bill Clinton, I, Lord knows I had my problems with Bill Clinton. Lord knows you had your problems. But he knew how to just talk about America as a good place beyond this sort of procedural, oh, we debate our, our flaws openly crap. And, um, and I think that Biden actually knows how to do that kind of talk, but he's not surrounded by a lot of people who know, that, know how to do that kind of talk. Yeah, so I would say a couple of things. First of all, Jonah, I think there is a remnant of us <laughs> who would be willing to make the case for America without falling into nationalism or we hate America stuff. Uh, but I think from Blinken's perspective, and this is not a defense of him because I completely agree with what you're saying, he's a really smart guy. And he's thinking on there, well, if I go and give this full-throated defense of America, I'm going to alienate our entire base and maybe make those folks mad at me and it creates a political problem. And if I go and... So, so basically his non-answer was a way of buying time and maybe they'll rethink about how, how to do it in the future. But I think he didn't want to create a political problem within his own, own base uh, when he did that. And I disagree with how he but went about it. that's such a searing indictment it. of his party, right? I mean, I agree yes, with you. I agree. You know, that if, if, oh, my base won't let me say that we're no, that we're slightly better than a country that is currently committing genocide. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not I agree. Good. It's a searing indictment of his party, but I think that's what he was thinking. Um, because I, I think he thought about it before he, he went forward and answered. He just, he was, he felt like he was stuck. Yeah. You may and be again, right. But depressing, that, but true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's sort of similar to this point I was making the other day about, um, you know, maybe one of the reasons why Republicans all ran to ground during the debates of, about the American rescue plan was because they didn't want to sound like hypocrites and they knew that, if they talked about how this spending was too much and that we have too much debt, the immediate response is, well, look what you um, approved when you guys ran everything. And the, I don't want to get into a big talk about debt and deficit stuff, but it just shows you how the institutional constraints within parties can force parties into um, really bad decision trees and rhetorical you know, backwaters, the idea that somehow the secretary of state 
feels like there's too much, there'd be too much of a political backlash to talk about how, you know, well, we have a constitution and we have the rule of law and we have honest courts and we have, um, you know, we're this incredibly generous people and that we're one of the least racist countries in the world. And unlike China, we, we had Jim Crow a generation, two generations ago, but we got rid of it and China has it today. I mean, there are all sorts of things you could say that, that you would like to think wouldn't cause, you know, the, the, the kids at the New York times op-ed page to, you know, set their dresses on fire about. Uh, You'd like to, but uh, I, I stand by ana- my analysis, unfortunately. Kids setting their dresses on fire because they hear things that trigger them is a good enough segue to, to your national affairs uh, piece um, where you, you give, a, give a history of how the, the right and others fought political correctness during its last resurgence. Um, and giving us some tips about how to fight cancel culture today. So why don't you just sort of walk through your argument and then we'll take it from there. Yeah. And, and the last point you make, Joe, and I think it is the key one, which is everyone on the right, everyone who's listening to this podcast has read some hand wringing piece about the law, the lack of free speech and how free speech is going away and cancel culture is killing us and blah, blah, blah. And I agree with all of it. So I agree. It's a major problem, but what I was trying to do is say, can we look to history and see if we can find some possible solutions, some possible paths forward and a strategy that could work against this behemoth of cancel culture that we're facing today? So I looked at the late 80s and early 90s when you and I were uh, in our heyday at the uh, AEI playing ping pong and uh, looking at the greats like uh, Irving Crystal and Gene Kirkpatrick and Walter Burns, et cetera. And I remember in that period, there was this problem of political correctness on campus. It was getting out of control. The left was forcing people to say outrageous things, preventing people from making certain arguments. And it sounded eerily similar to what we have today, worse today, but still a lot of similarities. And there was an effective pushback. There was a real war about political correctness in the late 80s and early 90s. And I think conservatives led the charge. And I think they were successful. I, I think that political correctness was actually pushed back significantly. And by 1995, we have got that essay that David Brooks wrote in the late lamented public interest that I cite where he says, is there anything more boring than talking about political correctness? Because it had basically been defeated. And there was a, a Hollywood movie called PCU, which made fun of a politically correct group of folks at the university. And Bill Maher's show is politically incorrect because he's, you know, again, a Hollywood liberal, I know a, a kind of free speech liberal, but a Hollywood liberal was saying, hey, I'm not like that group. We don't like political correctness. So and there's that kind of that period from 95 till about 2013 when the political correctness had receded a bit. And it starts to come back around 2013 when you see Condoleezza Rice and Heather McDonald and um, Charles Murray prevented from speaking. And it's obviously gotten worse over the subsequent seven, seven or eight years. But I tried to isolate what was done in that period why it worked and what we could kind of take from that period and bring back to today. So what happened in that period was you had a whole bunch of conservative writers initially, people like Alan Bloom wrote The Closing the American Mind, Dinesh D'Souza wrote A Liberal Education, and they were criticizing what was going on on campus and they were getting a broader audience to look at these problems and, and address them. And then you started to have some people on the left came on board uh, you had Jonathan Rausch wrote that book, Kindly Inquisitors, about a, a real question about what the meaning of free speech is. And then in the 1992 election, you even have 
Bill Clinton with his famous sister soldier moment where he criticizes sister soldier, which was seen as something that was perhaps verboten, but it was a bold step by Clinton that helped show that he was an actual moderate. And Barbara Jordan, liberal icon at the 1992 Democratic convention denounces political correctness in her speech. I had forgotten that. And when I did this piece, I really went back into it. And it just, it, my eyes popped open when I saw that. So it just seemed to me that political correctness was successfully pushed back against back then. And maybe we could take some of these tactics from back then. And let me just quickly isolate them. Number one is the unified conservative movement pushing back. Number two, getting these arguments out into the mainstream culture beyond just the Wall Street Journal editorial page and the Dispatch or National Review or, or those kinds of places. Number three, have some prominent liberals on board saying that this is a problem. And number four, broader ridicule from comedians and from the popular culture saying, hey, look how ridiculous these people are where they're making you spell women, W-Y-M-Y-N, so you don't have a M-E-N, men inside the word. So I think those four things are all things that could potentially be used against cancel culture today and hopefully push back against it. Yeah, so I, I, I thought the, 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 the memory lane part was very useful and very interesting and at times very depressing given the what's happened to some of the figures that you, you talk about in their role. I mean, Dinesh, you know, our former ping pong partner, uh, um, who I've been friendly with for years, I think has just completely gone off the rails. Um, and I have grave and, uh, serious disagreements with Bill Bennett these days. Uh, you mentioned Roger Kimball, you know, Alan Bloom has not disappointed me at all. And but he did die. He did die, age. which is a great way to freeze in place, you know, a lot of things. Hey, um, before we get into this um, in, in depth, um, um, you're one of the few people who's actually read the entirety of Closing of the American Mind. Um, as you know, uh, I read about the first half of it, and then you get into the Nietzscheization of culture and the long stuff about Mac the Knife. And uh, my eyes glazed over a little bit and I had to press through. But um, when was the last time you looked at Closing the American Mind? Well, I read it in its entirety back in the day and I picked it up along with all of these books I'm talking about, including A Liberal Education and Kindly Inquisitors, Tenured Radicals, uh, and flipped through it again for the purpose of writing this article. Yeah, no, I revisited it about 10 years ago when I was writing my first book and um, it's a great book, but I mean, again, my, my, my thing is like, it's, it's, it's a lot like stripes, About halfway in you were like, uh Oh, it's really kind of dropping off here. Um, and I think one of the unsung heroes about that was Erwin Glickis, who was the publisher, the editor for, for Close America mind on a lot of the, that era's conservative books. And he's the, I mean, you write, you write in your piece about how I was just thinking about it this morning, you know, at five in the morning, um, how, uh, Alan Bloom was so surprised, was sort of surprised by the success of his own book. Um, and I think that was in part because if, if they had published the manuscript as Bloom submitted it, it wouldn't have been a very popular book. And it was Glickus who realized, oh no, this chapter needs to be the first chapter, not the fifth chapter and, and that kind of thing. Um, and when you say this chapter, it's the chapter about the kid listening on his Walkman to the Rolling Stones and the orgiastic beat and all that stuff. Right, right. And... It seems to me, though, like, I mean, the, one of the reasons why I bring this up is that um, it feels so old, closing in the American mind, 
because it was still speaking, you know, we're Gen Xers, which is the last generation to actually have a something that looks like a common culture. Um, and his stuff about the common culture felt accessible because it was about something that pretty much everybody has some share of shared experience with. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why I think that the, the sort of the cultural intellectual, you know, crusade against cancel culture is going to be more problematic simply because we don't, we're not all singing even remotely from the same hymnal, even the way we were 35, 40 years ago. And, um, anyway, so I mean, I, I'm getting into a side track here. I'm getting sidetracked here because of the lack of coffee, but, um, getting back to the, 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 the issue at hand, um, can, can I just say, I don't think you're sidetracked at all. I think it's an excellent point. And it is one of the reasons why I say in the piece that cancel culture is broader, more worrisome, more problematic. And I think that to push back against it, we do need some kind of common templates and common ideas. And I think that one of the things that I think people often glaze over when they read the piece is the first tenet is some kind of unity on the right on this issue. I'm not saying everybody on the right has to agree on everything, but let's, uh, let's agree on the right. Let's push back on this. And then the second thing is when we're talking about a common culture, I'm not saying everybody has to, uh, in, in order for us to be successful, everyone has to read Plato and Aristotle, although I think that would be great. But I think for us to win on this issue, everybody's got to go back to this belief in free speech. And what really worked back in the 80s and 90s was that a lot of liberals strongly believed in free speech. They thought free speech was a value. And I think it still is a value, and it probably is a value for the majority of Americans, although not the majority of leftists and not the majority of woke warriors. But if we could get back to that tenet of free speech as something that unites us, then that is a, a place on which to stand to expand the reach of this argument. Yeah, so, I mean, like, so, I mean, I, again, I, I think it's a... It's a useful and interesting argument and analysis, but I, I first think that all right, so let me I'll just tick off some flaws, which you or not flaws, but you know uh, uh, some pushback points, and you can take them as you want on unifying the right. Good luck. Um, uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, I see right now we have um, a mass splintering of the right in part because. There are a lot of um, aspiring and would-be ascendant elites who want to replace existing elites. Um, we've got, um, and they're using ideas that you cannot walk back from about industrial policy to everything else um, very easily. Uh, getting unity on the right about cancel culture, huge problem, because um, there are large parts of the right that believe in their version of cancel culture, they just don't like left-wing cancel culture. Um, you know, I mean, I'd say this is someone who, you know, Donald Trump tried to get fired from several institutions. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a, and then there's the issue about, okay, on free speech. This is a very strange one for me because for 20 years, I have been more sympathetic than most conservatives towards censorship. And um, I've been very sympathetic to Irving Kristol's and Walter Burns' arguments about censorship. Um, uh, but mostly, you know, at the margins on the cultural side, um, 
uh, I think the internet kind of ruined that in a lot of ways and ruined any argument I can make. Cause you know, I'm, I, I, my touchstone moment was actually that, that conference we both worked on uh, good, a long time ago, um, about global popular culture. And Irving gave this talk about how nostalgic he was for his childhood where, you know, Ulysses would come out and there would be signs in the windows and Scribner's on Fifth Avenue in the bookstore saying banned in Boston. And, uh, and he was like, that wasn't the end of the world. A book was banned in one part of the country and it wasn't banned in another part of the country, but locals were allowed to local community leaders were allowed to police the, you know, the, what their kids or their people were exposed to. And I think there's a strong argument for some of that stuff, but internet and the globalization, never mind the nationalization of, of culture and, 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 and journalism and entertainment makes it almost a dead letter. But, um, uh, I am very pessimistic. And also so the last point I'll make is that let's flip it around again. I'm with you. I largely think the cancel culture stuff is garbage and dangerous and bad. And I do think, as much as I think it's bad on the right, I think it's much worse on the left in part because the left controls the commanding heights of the culture and it controls access to these elite institutions that the right doesn't. And so there's just an asymmetrical problem there. Um, but, um, you know, my argument about political correctness for years has been that, yeah, there's a lot of bad crap to it and a lot of it is really stupid and some of it is actually dangerous, but there is some non-trivial fraction of it that is a healthy and a good thing in a diverse society where it is an attempt to create new norms and sent and what constitutes good manners when talking to people. And, you know, if, if, if African-Americans didn't want to be called Negroes anymore, it is a sign of respect and good citizenship to call people what they want to be called. And if they want to be called African-Americans, if they want to be called blacks, seems to me not a lot of, not a lot is lost in that, even though at the time there were a lot of people sort of on the right in America generally who thought this was, you know, even if they didn't use the word political correctness was a kind of political correctness. And, um, and so there are aspects I'd have to think about what they might be to some of this stuff on the cancel culture side that is maybe an overreaction, but is part of that same process. And I don't know that there is a, there is the, the suppleness and nuance around to make any of these distinctions, um, certainly on the right or on the left. Have at it. Yeah, you make some great points. And let, let me uh, make some points in response. So first of all, Bill Buckley used to say that only two great things had changed in his lifetime. Number one was that you couldn't make casually racist or anti-Semitic comments anymore. And you also wouldn't casually litter, meaning you're on a picnic and you wouldn't just throw your trash out on the ground. I think those are both very good developments. And I don't think either of them are the project, the project of cancellation. I don't think they're the result of cancellation. I think they're the evolution of good manners and good behavior. And I'm all for that. Uh, number two, on the whole band in Boston thing, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but my first article was published in the American Enterprise. It was called The Fanny Hill Phenomenon, about how when people try and ban certain products, it only makes them more popular. And I was writing in the early 90s, specifically in response to a woman named Terry Ricolta, who was trying to ban the show Married with Children. And I went through American history and found other instances where people tried to ban a certain book 
and or a movie or a show, and it only made them more popular. So the American people generally and historically have rebelled against this notion of you can't look at this, you can't watch this, you can't read this. And it, it tends to make things more popular. So I think the cancelers have a problem in terms of the innate American sense of freedom leads to backlash against this. On uniting the right, look, I think we're going to have to have a conversation about if you say you're a conservative, does that mean anything? Are there any things that hold conservatives together? And you know, you and I have talked many hours about fusionism, and, and I think there does need to be some kind of new fusionism. I don't mean we uh, revisit everything that, uh, that that Frank Meyer said so much as we find what are the unifying things that make you say, "I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, I'm a," and I recognize those are different things. You know, I take a different perspective than the regnant liberal, uh, dominating, uh, commanding culture people think. And so are those, are there some things that we can point to? And I would like to think that some belief in the, getting back to the Blinken stuff, that America is a force for good in the world and some kind of sense that we believe in freedom of expression, that you can say something and disagree with me and you're not going to cancel me from ever appearing on the remnant or the dispatch ever again, but that we will continue to have arguments in a frame of mutual respect and recognize that we have different perspectives. So I, I think that that tenet really is not that much to ask for. And I think that <laughs> Myers fusionism actually went further and, and deeper in terms of finding things that you're unifying. I think this is a kind of a basic building block. And so I do think on your last point about uh, this stuff being broader and the, and the left having uh, the commanding heights of the culture, I, I think it's a bigger issue now. I talk about the piece, how it's bled into the corporations. It's not just on university campuses. So it's going to be a bigger and tougher effort. But I also talk in the piece about how we do see some signs that uh, you've got folks like uh, the Barry Weisses of the world and the Matt Taibis and the, and the Matt Iglesias, um, even the Jonathan Chates of the world. I mean, some of these people, like Chait and Iglesias, uh, reveled in tormenting conservatives for years, but they also recognize the excesses of the cancellation culture and the inability to have free speech. And the extent that this argument can bleed out beyond the right, which again, I hope we can be unified on this point uh, and be, reach out beyond the right to some smart liberals who are willing to say, hey, this is not good for any of us, I think gives some help. And then you see someone like Ricky Gervais, the comedian whom I mentioned in the piece, who's appalled that people are calling him conservative just because he believes in the concept of free speech. And you get people like that. And I think you get to reach a wider audience that doesn't read the Dispatch and National Review and the Wall Street Journal editorial page. So I think, again, tougher problem today, but I think some of the building blocks for addressing it are there. So what, what, what is your theory of the case? What is your sociological or political argument about why political correctness emerged in the 19, late 80s, early 90s, and why the cancel culture stuff has emerged now? Um, what, what, what was in the water? What were, what were the external circumstances that made these things resurge at these times? Do you have a theory about either? Um, I think in, um, I think in the late eighties, there was a sense on the left that the presidency was in Republican hands and that they needed to go to different avenues to go the direction they want to get to. And I think one of the reasons that political correct practice may have receded in the 90s was in part because of Bill Clinton's election. 
and the sense that they can get things through the political realm and not just do it through the cultural realm. So I think that's part of it. I think there is the idea of the long march through the universities. You had this first wave of students who are educated by the 60s radicals in the late 80s. Um, and now I think today you've got a new generation of people who were educated by the children of the 60s radicals, who were more radical than the 60s radicals themselves in many ways. So I think that's another thing. I also think that the, uh, the kind of uh, explosion of, um, of uh, political divide after the 2016 election contributed to it. And, and you correctly note that there are some on the right who don't want to hear views that they don't like. And there's this uh, tit for tat sense of both sides saying, well, we don't want to let your views out in this platform and you're not going to let our views out in that platform. So I think those are three of the factors that have contributed to it. And I, and I sometimes I wonder if perhaps a Biden presidency, and again, if he does speak in that way we we're talking about, that's a little more unifying, could lead to a bit of a, um, uh, I, I guess, a, uh, a retreat of cancel culture as people look to the political realm. Again, leftists look to the political realm to get what they want done rather than just the cultural and educational realms. Um, there's a lot there I agree with. Um, uh, and I think that there was definitely the, the point about how Clinton allowed the left to feel like they could do politics through the institutions that were intended for politics is an important one. Um, I mean, I remember uh, we're both fans of David Brooks, uh, but like his biggest shortcoming in like Bobo's in Paradise and in some of his columns is that David, because he's a sweet, decent hearted guy, desperately wants the culture war to be over. And so a big chunk of his stuff He's got this amazing sociologist's eye, but it tends to only find the, find the stuff he wants to see where the light is good. And so, like, you know, he went to Burlington, Vermont, um, and did this big thing about how, like, it's the end of history there and people don't care about politics because they care more about their distressed furniture and their expensive, weird coffees and, um, and their, their, you know, bourgeois bohemians and their, you know, and they're happy. And, you know, he writes this in late 97, 98, and then you get the Clinton impeachment stuff. And all of a sudden the same people that, that, that David saw as like living in a post-political brigadoon, grab their pitch pitchforks and lose their minds. And, um, and I think that, that, uh, but there is this tendency that when you feel like everything is going okay for your team, someplace else, you don't have to worry about that stuff closer to home, which gets to my stuff about weak parties and why Congress is broken and all that, but we don't have to get into that. Um, that said, uh, you know, you, your argument tracks pretty closely with stuff that Steve Hayward was saying on here the other day about where the resurgence of political correctness and the, the, the emergence of political correctness in the, in the eighties and nineties. And then again, this stuff has to do with a sense of powerlessness. And part of it was the, in the, the cancel culture one in 2013, 2014 is the, in the great awakening and all of that has to do with the disappointment in the Obama presidency for not actually being transformative. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, but I, I'm, you know, you cite Lukianov and, and Jonathan Haidt in your piece and, 
you know, part of my explanation for where a lot of this stuff comes from, which listeners have heard many times, is comes from height and this coddling of of Americans. And this generation of young people, they're the first generation of kids to grow up entirely. Because first of all, it's a largely an elite phenomenon, I think. Um, and because it's an elite phenomenon, people who want to join the elite learn the shibboleths of the elite to be able to join the elite. So that's how it become, becomes sort of a defining feature of our meritocracy is to speak woke so you can enter into the meritocracy, which is a really pernicious and dangerous thing. But that said, these kids grow up where they're not taught that free speech is good. They're taught that hurting people's feelings is the most evil thing that you can do and that saying mean things is is literally violence and that that if they have a disagreement with somebody they need to call in a third party adult um adjudicator to mediate these disagreements rather than handle it themselves and maybe push each other around on the playground and they go up their entire lives they get to college being told that if something makes you feel uncomfortable it's bad and then they they need trigger warnings and if you believe in the trigger warning stuff which i think is somewhat exaggerated um but if you believe in that stuff and if you believe that being made to feel uncomfortable and unsafe is, is evil, then of course you must remove the things in front of you that make you feel unsafe. And that's how you get cancel culture. And so one of the reasons why I think it's much more pernicious than the old PC thing is that this is the generation, the PC, the aging PC jackwads have been waiting for because you now have, it is a mass movement of an actual cultural change rather than this boutique argument among disgruntled professors who can't fill their classrooms um, about, you know, reviving political correctness stuff. This is actually, this, there's a market demand for the cancel culture stuff because these kids grew up in it. And, um, and now they're, as they're graduating from college, they're taking over these institutions and they're, you know, the left-wing stuff is being exported from the campus into places like the New York Times and, you know, and, and Teen Vogue and, and everywhere else. And so I, anyway, I just think it is, it is more definitionally encoded in the, the culture to not like free speech, not like free expression, not think it's good because they have not, they're the first generation that I think has been on a large scale taught not to like these things. They don't think it's like essential, essential to being a good American. And they've also been taught that it's, there's nothing essential to, there's nothing essentially good about being an American. Sorry to get all gloomy and pessimistic on you. Uh, I think uh, our mutual mentor, Ben Wattenberg, is very upset at your uh, relentless pessimism because uh, he was the uh, <laughs> definition of an optimist. But l- let me say that I stipulate the premise of my piece is that cancel culture is a problem. It is a broader problem than PC was, that you do have these, when you say the uh, PC jackwads with your phrase, who... Um, who think that they have control over, over a new generation. All of this is a problem. What I'm trying to get at is how we can address the problem. And I think that there is a limit to how far this can go. Obviously, you know, if the uh, Chinese argument in that summit is correct, then this whole thing is unsustainable and, and it's going to collapse, right? That, you know, the old Herbstein thing, if something is not sustainable, it won't sustain. But I, I do think that there's a lot of people who reject this idea. I think that the um, you're talking, you acknowledge that it's an elite problem and you wonder about the reach of the elites. I mean, there's really only a few dozen colleges that we're talking about. And there are hundreds and hundreds of colleges across this great country where this isn't an issue. People are just trying to 
you know, go to their commuter schools to get their degrees and, and move on and get a, a job in life. So it's, it's, a, it's a relatively narrow phenomenon, again, with broad reach, because these people are the, the cultural elites. But you wonder how sustainable it is. You know, I, I know somebody who worked at a Fortune 50 company who told me that his company had a policy of not hiring anyone from Harvard, Yale, or Princeton because these woke warriors come out and they're entitled and they don't really want to work and they don't want to do the things that you have to do in a corporation to succeed. And if there's a sense that you send your darlings to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, and maybe they can't get jobs after majoring in woke studies for four years, maybe this whole thing doesn't work. And, and you know, Harvard with its $50 billion endowment can, can sustain it longer than others. But a lot of colleges won't be able to put up with it if they're putting out kids where there's a sense in corporate America of get woke, go broke, right? If you adopt all this woke stuff, your company won't be able to do what it needs to do to be a successful company. And then you, you mentioned Jonathan Haidt, and uh, I'm, I'm a fan of his, but you know he had an interview in the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago. I know it was a number of years ago because the, the person who interviewed him was Barry Weiss before she left the journal and then before she left the Times. And it was the weekend interview, you know, that feature they have on, on this Saturday uh, where they have a little caricature of him. And he had this line in there that just jumped out at me where he's obviously a really smart guy. He said he was 40 years old. He had gone to Yale. He grew up in New York City. He said he was 40 years old before he ever encountered a conservative idea. So on one side, that bolsters your argument that the woke warriors are dominating the culture and you've got someone like Jonathan Haidt who never hears a conservative idea. But on the other hand, at 40, Jonathan Haidt, a really smart guy who was probably pretty set in his ways, encountered conservative ideas and said, hey, maybe there's something to this. And I would say that, I wouldn't call him a conservative per se, but I would say he's an ally in this war. And I think we can pick up allies in this war from people who are on the left side of the spectrum who actually believe that they should have the right to express themselves. I mean, if you look at any liberal institution over time, and you know, you know, I like to write about uh, internal fights. I mean, they're always riven by internal arguments because people argue about you know, like the narrow sides of uh, you know, the narrow sides on, on the pin, right? They, 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 people don't always agree on everything. And if you get a sense that you can't argue, you can't disagree, which is you know, let's get back to your your uh, famous book, Liberal Fascism. I mean, the, the sense that if people can't even have an argument, a lot of people inherently, and in, in here maybe let's get into uh, natural right, natural law. People just don't like that. And I understand these woke warriors are raised in this this uh, will cancel culture and don't um you know don't don't trigger me and don't offend me and words are violence. But you know the, the inherent contradictions of it you, you hear from the woke warrior silence is violence when you're not saying what they want. But on the other hand, words are violence. Well, which is it? Is it silence is violence or words are violence? And I think there are inherent contradictions in the cancel culture movement, and it, I think it moves against the natural tendencies of human beings in a way that we can push back on. Now, that doesn't mean that, let, let's say it's a, you know, it's a football game, uh, you know, we're favored and the spread's in our direction. I mean, you know, I'd give them points on the board. However, I think we can push back on it, and I'm trying to create a strategy and a, a, a vision for how to do it. No, that that's all fair and that's all well received. And I, I'm I'm open as far as it goes to doing all of the things that you recommend. Um, I I still think it's it it is it is a very you know I we should I'll take a backup. You 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 name check Ben Wattenberg and how pessimistic I am. I have like in so many things um, adopted Yuval, our friend Yuval Levin's 
stance on this, which is that um, I am neither a pessimistic nor optimistic um, because pessimism and optimism have inherent in them this assumption that just things of themselves will get better um, or worse, right? Depending on which. Um, rather, I am hopeful because hopeful, hopefulness at least gives me some agency and, um, uh, and doing what we can to fight all this stuff is, is, is worth, is worth doing even if you lose. Right. I mean, that's the, one of these things that I, I, you know, I try to impress on people all my life is that, um, people like us will always be outnumbered when it comes to politics. Um, either, you know, and I'm not even talking about the right, you know, I'm just talking about that most people don't think a lot about politics and the, and most of the people who do think a lot about politics think about politics because they want to use government to do all sorts of things and run all sorts of things. And so the number of people who think seriously about politics, who actually want the free market to do its thing and want, uh, you know, uh, liberty to work its magic and federalism to work its magic and let people, you know, solve their own problems and, and, and all of that is, is a tiny, tiny subset of the number of people who take politics seriously. And again, the number of people who take politics seriously is a tiny, tiny subset of people generally who generally what want from politics, what they can get from it and nothing else. And, um, and that's okay, right? That's part of the point of being in the remnant is that you can be a happy warrior because you're on the side of liberty. You're on the side of the only successful anti-poverty program in all of human history. You're on the side of human beings reaching their maximum potential and being a happy warrior, even if you lose some of those fights is okay because you're on the right side of the most important argument. So I'm, I'm with you on, on all of that. Um, and I'm also, you know, I don't think there's anything such thing as a truly lost cause, as long as there's a remnant of people around, you know, fighting for all that stuff. But I think it's going to take more than the usual tools and it may just be like a poison that needs to run its course, right? It needs, these people need to be in charge long enough for them to invite their own rebellion. Um, and then you get a generation of Lenny Bruce type people who are like, man, I grew up under these just dour woke warriors who, you know, needed a truckload of brand just to crack a smile and didn't let anybody have any fun. But there's, you know, the fact that comedians, you know, you talk about enlisting comedians, which I think is a good thing and a good point, but comedians have sort of been enlisted in this to a certain extent or, or have joined this cause to a certain extent already. I've seen lots of interviews with comedians, you know, I think including Seinfeld and Chris Rock, who just say they don't go to college campuses anymore. And the depressing thing about that is it's not so much, I mean, it's great that they're condemning that, but as market guys, the fact that there isn't a market on co among college audiences for comedians is kind of depressing. Um, and it's a sign of how ingrained, like in the glory days of PC, you could still have comedians go to college campuses and say all sorts of things. And part of the fun of it was that they were poking at the sensibilities and the pieties of the PC people. Now to poke at the pieties of the woke people is dangerous to your career and and, 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 and doesn't get you booked in the first place. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a profound cultural difference these days. Um, and again, I'm rambling, but, and, I, and we're also sort of in violent agreement. So, 
know, I, I don't know if we're, I mean, we're in large agreement, not, not complete violent. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a, uh, a quote from Irving Crystal that I'm going to paraphrase, which I believe is I'm existentially pessimistic, but operationally optimistic, which gets back to your thing about agency. Let's, you know, we can go out there and, and do things. And yeah, sure, you know, Seinfeld won't go on a college campus, and I don't blame him. And I think his rebuke of college campuses is, is in itself uh, an implicit victory for the, the side of free speech. But there's that guy, I don't know his last name, Sebastian something, who did that, um, that post on St. Patrick's Day, a kind of a gruff New York guy, maybe you could put it in the, in the show notes, uh, where he said, happy St. Patrick's Day. Can I say that? Can I say Patrick? Can I celebrate green? It was just very <laughs> funny, kind of in-your-face New York uh, I reject all this cancellation nonsense. And, you know, maybe he's not showing up on college campuses, but he got thousands and thousands of hits with that. And I think there are ways to push back on this stuff. Now, I, we, we haven't gotten to this whole issue of uh, Twitter and Facebook and what the what, what the social media companies are going to do in terms of deplatforming people. And that that's another problem that I don't really address in, in the article. And, and frankly, wasn't as big a problem when I started writing this article because it took me months to write. But I think there are ways to get the message out today that there might not have been in 1988 or, or 1990. And, and I, I, I agree with what we were saying in general about uh, Dinesh's uh, subsequent direction. But Dinesh at the time, in the late 80s, was very skillful in making sure he could get his message out. So you need people who are not just thinkers, not just writers, but also PR entrepreneurs who know how to get the message out despite the countervailing trends from the larger popular woke sensibilities that don't want to hear it. And I think we have those tools to get, get those words out and you know, reach a Jonathan Haidt who's 40, who's never heard a conservative idea, and then maybe says, Eureka, I'm going to join this cause instead. So again, operational optimism is, is my watchword, and I try and give people a roadmap for how to get there. Let's switch gears for just two seconds. Um, I don't know why I'm bringing this up now, but I'm just l listening to you. It reminded me of it. So I, I was actually talking to Podoritz about this recently. Um, um, and I won't say what, what sparked it, but so you and I have, you know, we've taken slightly different paths since we knew each other, uh, since we first met when I recall you were describing yourself as a neo-Straussian libertarian. Um, and, uh, uh, but we've both lived in and out of this sort of think tanky, eggheady world. Um, you're you have more bona fides, bona fides, bona fides uh, as a um, as a credentialed intellectual, given your PhD and your White House sinecure and that weird signet and cape that they gave you, which we don't need to talk about. Um, and um, and, you know, in the, in the ball and scepter thing, you know, I wish you would just do that for special occasions. But anyway, you know, we live in this world and, you know, when, and we both worked for Wattenberg and I've always had up until fairly recently, not a chip on my shoulder, but a certain amount of, of considered humility about the fact that I'm a popularizer. You know, I'm a generalist, jack of all trades, master of none. I mean, there are a few things I know a good deal about, but for the most part, um, um, I'm a generalist and a popularizer. And one of the frustrations I've had with this podcast, and you're the reason I'm bringing it up with you is because you're one of the exceptions to it, is um, 
I'll get people here who are experts. I mean, true experts on some important slice of American public policy or whatever. And their general lack of enthusiasm for their own topics <laughs> is baffling to me. Like, as you know, like you or I, you know, we get a hold of an idea that we're really interested in and we get excited about it and we bring, you know, some passion to it. You know, I mean, people who listen to this podcast know that I've been obsessed with this thing about weak parties and, you know, and various other uh, obsession. Woodrow Wilson is another one, right? Um, and cue the music. Exactly. And, uh, um, and the idea of spending years working on basically one narrow subject and then being asked about it. I mean, I'm not, not that the remnant is some massive platform that is, you know, crucial, but it's the same thing at every scale. As far as I can tell, being a true deep expert on something and dedicating basically your professional life to something and then being asked about it on a public venue and being lackluster um, is baffling to me, right? I mean, it's like, you know, like get so, you talk to somebody who has been studying uh, school vouchers for a thousand years and then you get them on and you talk about it. Well, you know, it's interesting. There was this one study that said this and there's this other study that said that. And it's like, and it's made me have a new appreciation, first of all, for what Ben was, because Ben was a generalist. And um, I was talking to Pod about it. And like, there is, there's a really important, more important role than I am. You know, I always was sort of a little embarrassed about being a generalist and not ashamed, but just sort of that's who I am. And I've come to like own it and actually think it's more important than a lot of the special, I mean, you need the specialists to, to be sure, but the people who are the worst at selling their own specialties as a general rule, at least in Washington are the specialists themselves. And they need help to explain to other people why their ideas are important or interesting or useful. Um, and that was what Ben did. And, um, uh, and so you're sort of in the hybrid place cause you do some of the generalist stuff, but you're also kind of a specialist guy. And, um, first of all, do you think this is a weird observation? Do you think it's just generally true? I mean, I don't want to get any of our friends in trouble by naming some of the people I have in mind, but I think my son, my hunches is you can think of a few too. Um, but anyway, what, what is your reaction to all that? Well, my first reaction is one of amusement and saying that perhaps I'm not the right person to respond to this question because you made fun of me on a remnant with, in front of Bing West for mentioning my book too often. So <laughs> I definitely bring this happy warrior eager to talk about the ideas that I'm trying to bring forward. And yeah, no, that, uh, I've not that, mentioned. That's, that's why it came to mind is when you come on, you have an agenda, you, 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 you want to make your argument, you have your points thought through and uh, this is not a criticism. It's just, it's, I, 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 it's a, it's a, it's an acknowledgement that you bring, you, you, you come to play. And I appreciate that. Yeah. When I go on the remnant, I don't go on lightly. I've been on, I believe four times. And I think about what I'm going to say in the interview before I do it. And I do that often. And I, I got to give credit to uh, Ari Fleischer on this. He gave a presentation when I was uh, a surrogate for Mitt Romney's uh, presidential campaign back in 2012. And in that, he gave a kind of primer on how to go on TV and how to do interviews. And he said, if you 
are just thinking on the car ride over what you're going to say for a minute, you've already failed in the interview. He said, you have to think about this stuff in advance. He, he actually said, write down the points you want to make in paper, not on a computer screen. Uh, he also said he had this really good admonition, which people should think of now, which is always, always tell the truth. If you say anything that you don't 100% know, you shouldn't be saying that in an interview. And then he showed this great clip of Hillary Clinton talking about how she came under sniper fire in Bosnia. And then they showed that uh, she actually got off and was given garlands and treated very nicely. So uh, you have to think about this stuff. It, I understand that you, you, know, you say you're just a generalist, but you know, you've written three very good books that I read, uh, and, and as I said, have touted all of them and happy to do so. Uh, but you also, I mean, you are the head of a media company, right? It's it's starting, but, you know, it's, it's it's early years, but you're the head of a media company. You've got this podcast that has hundreds of thousands of downloads. You could correct me if it's even more. Uh, you have a weekly show where you just talk about what's on your mind and people, including myself, tune in to listen. You have multiple syndicated columns. I mean, you learned from Ben Wattenberg how to get your ideas out there. And I think you've done very well at it. And if there are some people who have, uh, subspecialties that they don't want to tout. Well, I, I understand that. But if you really have ideas and you want to be involved in this world, you've just got to get out there and push it. Yeah, I, I appreciate the kind words. I wasn't fishing for any of that. I but and I, and I know you even... weren't and you don't. That's not your way. <laughs> but no, it just, it's, um, I kind of have this new appreciation for, uh, let's put it in terms that we can both appreciate. Um, Jeff Goldblum and the fly, right? I mean, I was talking to Matt Ridley about this um, in his book about innovation. There's a difference between an inventor and an innovator in the sense that the innovator takes, and I'm being very, speaking very broad brush, right? But the innovator takes different things that have already been invented and puts them in new important combinations to do new things and, and, um, and there's that scene where Jeff Goldblum talks about how he doesn't really understand how his transporter device works. He just farms out specific things that he thinks he needs to make it work to other people who are specialists who do what they do. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll give you, I think this is a safe example that won't get me in trouble with anybody. Um, our mutual friend, Nick Schultz, when he was the editor of the American, uh, magazine at formerly American Enterprise, and then became the American Magazine uh, at AEI. During the uh, initial arguments about Obamacare you know, 10 years ago, or however long that was, and, and there was some issue about healthcare, about, about insurance mandates or something, one of those hot button things. And he went to one of the healthcare economists and said, hey, you know, it'd be great if we could get like an 800-word piece from you explaining where this is and how to think about it or whatever. And the response from The Economist was, well, I did a paper for notes on public health from Harvard about this four years ago, and I pretty much said everything I have to say on the topic. <laughs> and like, and, and poor Nick, you know, Nick has to be like, I get that. Seminal piece, really. Great. Any chance that like you could update it or maybe consider the possibility that some Americans missed that piece, <laughs> you know, and, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's, it just, it's interesting to me, the sociology of 
how I live in this world with so many specialists. And there's something about being a specialist that doesn't lend itself to actually being passionate about mixing it up in the, in the, in the battle space or whatever. And it just, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. And, and you're one of those exceptions to it who sort of gets, cause you've written about think tanks and you lived in think tanks, you worked in government, you worked in journalism that, and you've been in academia, you kind of have a better, bigger picture of that. You know, it's like it comes across in the piece you wrote, right? I mean, it's, it's about ideas and how to combat and combat ideas. But it takes into account the role that media and institutions play in that effort. And I think there are a lot of people out there in our world who think serious, important, impactful scholarship is to write something really powerful and persuasive and, and, and thoughtful and then put it in a bottle and then put a cork in the bottle and throw it in the ocean and go on about your day. And I just think it's kind of, it, it's weird. Anyway, uh, we don't need to dwell on Yeah, this. I remember our friend Nick Eberstadt saying to me, again, this was 30 years ago when we were junior folks at AI, saying that everything he writes, he uses seven times. He called it the rule of seven. And I think with the internet, you really can't do that. You can't just say the same thing seven times. because. But uh, you could certainly take a concept that you're working on and apply it in seven different ways. And uh, you know, with, with my last book, which I won't mention because you say I mentioned it too much, but uh, I, I certainly wrote a, a, about a 10 or a dozen pieces that talked about different aspects of fighting in the White House and how they can apply today and how it could apply to the Biden administration, how to think about uh, different things that are happening today in the political world. I applied it to the sports world. So I think you can take your ideas and put them in different places without necessarily plagiarizing yourself in a way that you'll get totally busted in the Internet age. Um, and for listeners, the book is Fight House. It's it's a great book. Go back and listen to our podcast on it, and 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 just revel in the spectacle of Tevi Troy's book tour discipline. Uh, but uh, and I will say another exception. Now we got the this, comment. I'm going to tweet. Um, uh, the other, you know, some other people are exceptions. Is actually both of your brothers, who are uh, one's a historian and one's a super fancy pants lawyer guy, um, and uh, um, and as, as at your, at the moving and wonderful, uh, memorial service for your mom, the stories about how your mom, you know, was very proud of both you and your brother Gil for being historians and writers. And what was the line she used about your brother, Dan? He's important in his own right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like your brother, Dan was like general counsel at FDA and it's like, um, this just huge legal you know, uh, you know, juggernaut. Um, uh, but anyway, I, it's, anyway, it's an interesting thing. Um, we can move off of it. Uh, what was I going to say? Have you seen the Snyder cut? Do you care about the Snyder cut? You were always a DC guy. I figure I should at least ask you this you used to, you know, pop culture used to be much more central to your writing life um do you have opinions in this regard so, this so most pressing pop issue. culture is still central to my life i don't write about it as much and um this is something you and i should probably talk about offline but i have had a movie club with my son noah we watched over 100 movies together in this pandemic period so uh, i'm definitely revisiting a lot of old movies i have not yet watched the snyder cut and i'm trying to figure out if i can find 
someone in my family who would watch all four hours with me. And my son Ezra is coming home from college uh, for uh, soon. And so perhaps he will sit through it with me, but I've not yet watched it myself. So I have a piece of advice about this because I watch, like I told my daughter and my daughter loves superhero movies. She did not like Batman versus Superman. She, you know, she, she likes the Marvel ones better, but um, she, I told her about the Snyder cut thing. And I said, you know, and it's four hours. And she was like, I don't think I want to watch that. And, uh, but I convinced her to, and it didn't take a lot of work. It's just like, I'll, I'll make popcorn. Said, oh, okay. Um, but, uh, um, we split it in two. We watched the first two hours and, um, and then the second two hours, like a couple days later. And I will say, I don't want to give you any spoilers. I'm sure you've been trying to avoid some of that, but, um, I found that actually surprisingly useful. Because it let me process, you know, if you do the full four hours, you kind of forget what's different in this version versus the other one. And because um, you're just having it just break like a wave over you. But if you break it in half, you can kind of digest the first half, get what's going on. Um, and then the second half, I actually think is better than the first half. And it helps you sort of put the whole thing in context. And, and anyway, just watching it in digestible bikes made sense. And, and it's, it's consciously split into part one, part two, part three. At some point you kind of feel like, Oh my God, this is going to go on to like part 406. But, um, so there are some natural spots where you can just say, okay, let's finish this tomorrow or whatever. Well, I, I hate to say this because you and I have long argued about DC versus Marvel. I thought the DC comics were better. You thought the Marvel comics were better, but I would say that there is no doubt that the Marvel movies have been better than the DC movies, with the exception of the Nolan Batman franchise, which the, those three were fantastic. But overall, the Marvel movies are just consistently better. They have the right touch. They have the right tone. They have great special effects. They're not these portentous bores that some of the DC movies have been. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I, I got my disagreements with, I mean, with Sonny Bunch about this. I mean, Sonny, and alas, he's converted Dave, my, my colleague David French on this. Sonny who has many interesting opinions and is a wonderful writer and, a, and, a, and, a, and, and like me, a curmudgeon with, you know, with a good heart. Um, uh, not saying I have a good heart, but he's like me, a curmudgeon. Um, he thinks that this insight that what Snyder was doing with Man of Steel in these movies was to explore the question of how would the world react if a real God came and lived amongst us. And I think that is a fine and interesting insight about what's going on in the movies, particularly with regard to Superman. That's not enough to make it an enjoyable movie. I mean, there are lots of movies with some really interesting ideas in them that then don't execute well. And uh, I just... I think that idea was the right idea and worth exploring, particularly with Superman. Um, but uh, because I think Superman is just a fundamentally flawed superhero um, because he's just too powerful and too good at everything. Um, but that doesn't, you, you don't, don't, don't if, if that was all that was necessary to make them good movies, the movies could have been one minute long. You know, they could have been shorts. Uh, you still have to like execute and make these characters characters that you like and enjoy watching and and get interested in the plot and have the CGI look remotely as good as the Marvel CGI. Anyway, I think that was the main 
my main my, my main problem with all of it is I just don't think they're executed as as enjoyable movies as well as the Marvel one. But I agree with you. The Nolan Batman ones stand out, and this gets back to our longstanding argument that Batman really is a Marvel character. He was just accidentally born in the DC universe. Uh, I will not accept that argument because I think Batman is emblematic of the DC universe. But uh, but but I do get the larger point. But you know the thing about Sonny and his argument is if you have to convince someone to look at a movie in a way, the whole idea of movies is to watch them and your immediate reaction tells you what you feel inside. And, and I think this even gets back to our larger point about political correctness and, and cancel culture. People have an inherent sense that they don't like to be canceled, that they don't like to be censored, that they don't like to be told you can't say this. And in order to get these woke warriors, you have to indoctrinate them through all of kindergarten and through all of elementary school and middle school and high school and college to get them to that place. And yeah, some people are going to end up after 22 years there, but the vast majority of people will not be going to certain elite schools in LA and New York, and, so, and they won't be going to certain elite colleges. And so the vast majority of people won't continue through that entire indoctrination process and will just have this inherent sense of, I believe in freedom, and you can have one opinion and I can have another opinion, and we can still be friends, and I'm not going to deplatform you or cancel you or fire you as a result. And, and I think that the, I think the last four years, the politics have contributed to this sense of, well, if you are on one side of the political divide, you're kind of verboten and I can't talk to you and you should be shunned. But I don't think that that is always going to be the American way. And I'd like to get to a place where we're not in that space. And on that note, because as Tevi texted me during this conversation that people are going to call this podcast, the Snyder cut of the remnant, um, we will call it to a, we, we break the fourth wall here all the time, Tevi. Um, we'll call this to an end. Tevi, thank you so much for coming back. This is great. I really appreciate it. And, um, I think you're doing great, Jonah. I appreciate all the good work you're doing. Keep it up and uh, let's talk again soon. Okay. So Tevi has left the, the studio and, um, I apologize to listeners who, uh, may have been put off by my wanderings and meanderings and, um, I kind of felt like I was giving, I kind of felt like I was Joe Biden giving extemporaneous remarks. Um, but, uh, uh, it's always good to have Tevi on and, um, thank you to everybody out there for your tolerance and in indulging my, uh, vacation, um, such as it is, uh, my, um, you know, I think as I mentioned before, this is my daughter's last spring break of high school and we wanted to do something fun and family oriented before she goes off to college and, um, and I have to sell a kidney to send her to college. So there's, there's that. Um, and, uh, so we've had a great time. I, maybe on the solo remnant, I will, I will give more of a travel log. Um, I'm in St. George today, um, in Utah. For those of you who don't know, or don't follow Shoshana Weissman on Twitter, uh, who's been on the remnant, uh, she's, um, uh, as passionate about uh, hiking and exercise these days as she is about licensing reform. Um, and, and she's a good example of the kind of person I'm talking about who's, um, who actually gets enthusiastic about the subject matter. Um, unlike a lot of specialists out there, she actually brings some passion to it. But, uh, I believe I was the one who told her that she needed to go to Utah um, to hike more because Utah, I think after 
Hawaii and California are is the most geographically or geologically or I don't know what the right term is interesting state in the union. Um, you really can't beat Hawaii. You know, the big Island has like, there are like 13 climates on planet earth. And the big Island I think has 11 of them. Um, something like that. Um, and having just driven through California and Yosemite and parts of California, I'd never been to before. You just can't beat California for physical beauty. Um, but then Utah is just a funky, weird, interesting place. And, um, I wish they had a more robust relationship with alcohol here, but you know, you gotta, everything, every, every silver cloud has a dark lining. Um, and, uh, other than that, uh, it's been a great trip for the most part. You know, you run into some family stuff when you go, when you drive as much as we have. Um, I think we've put about 17, 1800 miles on the car so far on this trip, maybe a little more. No, we must've put on more. We put it, I'm sorry. We put 1700 miles since we were last in Utah, um, which is a completely different metric. Um, so, uh, there's been, you know, a little dad saying we're going to be whistling zippity doodah out of our butts and you'll like it. Um, which is a national lampoon family vacation reference. Um, so anyway, I need coffee. I think you can tell. Thanks to Caleb. Thanks to Nick. Uh, no thanks to Guy because he showed up late and he has some sort of excuse, but we don't accept excuses around here. Um, and uh, my apologies to fans of uh, Closing the American Mind. We can debate that another day. Um, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>